listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. If you consider your dog a family member, then this podcast is for you. Let's celebrate the love and connection we have with our dogs. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. This is a place for us to connect in the joy of loving our dogs, and also a place where you know you're not alone in the difficult times, or in the sadness of missing a dog that was an important part of your life. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Believe in Dog Podcast. Thank you so much for your patience. It's been longer than I had anticipated since the last episode. I was sick for about 10 days and had lost my voice for about two weekends in a row, which has really put me behind schedule. I'm so excited for you to hear today's interview with Jen Swanson. Jen is the Executive Director of the Humane Society of Harford County. If you listen to episode one of the podcast, you'll know that I adopted my Lucy from the Humane Society of Harford County back in 2004. Lucy is the dog that made me fall in love with dogs, and she's the dog who my podcast logo is designed after. I was so excited when Jen became the executive director because I knew that it meant only good things for the animals of Harford County. I respect and admire Jen and the work that she's done at the shelter so incredibly much. Jen became the executive director of the shelter in August of 2015, and for the first time in 2016, the shelter achieved a 90% live release rate and has continued to achieve that every year since under her leadership. In fact, the Humane Society of Harford County just released their report card for 2019, in which they shared a 90% live release rate, meaning that live release rate is the percentage of animals who left the shelter alive, meaning adopted, reclaimed by an owner, or transferred to a rescue. It reflects how well the shelter is performing to ensure that the community's neediest animals are receiving the loving care and second chances that they deserve. So in Harford County in 2019, they took in 2,737 animals, and they have an infographic that shows all of their different statistics. For instance, 382 pets were lost and reunited with their families. 411 animals were transferred to rescue partners. 1,332 animals were adopted, with an average length of stay of 17 days. I just find all of this so fascinating, and I appreciate the transparency with which Jen is operating the shelter. And in addition to running the shelter, Jen's professional bio also includes that she was appointed to the Baltimore City Mayor's Anti-Animal Abuse Advisory Commission in 2015. She is the current vice president of the Professional Animal Workers of Maryland. She's a member of the Baltimore Animal Welfare Alliance and an executive member of the Society of Animal Welfare Administrators and a professional member of the National Animal Care and Control Association. She was the recipient of the Society of Animal Welfare Administrators 2013 Randy Party Scholarship. She was a Maryland nonprofits leader in 2014 and a graduate of the Harford Leadership Academy in 2016. Jen and I will discuss her background and how she got started in animal sheltering, which can basically only be described as trial by fire. And Jen tells us about the special needs animals that keep finding her. 
In addition to the 90% live release rate, Jen shares with us how precarious of a number this is and how an incident like hoarding or an abuse case could affect these numbers at any time. One thing I ask her about is the idea of no kill and how there's so many different definitions of this. And while it's great to promote life saving, the term no kill can actually have very big downsides too. And Jen shares with us why that's not language or terminology that she uses. We discuss the importance of getting involved in humane legislation, meaning with your state or local legislators, the laws that affect the animals where you live, and why it's important for the legislators to know that we're paying attention. Jen explains to us the different shelter models, and I learned some things about the county I've lived in most of my life that I didn't know. One of the things that really comes through to me about Jen is the respect and appreciation that she has for her staff and the various roles in the many, many hats that they wear. Jen talks about how she admires so much the work that they're doing on the front lines. Jen explains to us the term shelter intervention, meaning programs to help keep animals in homes and keep them out of the shelter when their home is the best place for them, and the various ways and what this looks like at the Humane Society of Hartford County. We discuss the idea of burnout and compassion fatigue, and Jen tells us about the term compassion resilience that she's trying to instill at her shelter. We discuss the pros and cons of social media in the animal sheltering world. And Jen tells us about some of the challenges and also successes that she's had over the last five years working at the Humane Society of Hartford County. So let's get started. Well, I am here today with Jen Swanson, the Executive Director of the Humane Society of Harford County. Hi, Jen. Hi, how are you? I am great. Thank you so much for your time and for having me, and uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks. So I'm always very curious, um, were you someone who had a lot of pets growing up, or did it come later in life? So when we were growing up, we had cats pretty much all the time. Um, But we did not have dogs too often. We did have a couple. Um, Unfortunately, one of them had distemper and had to be put down. And I don't know really how much that affected me later on in life. I've never really given it a lot of thought because it was pretty painful at the time. His name was Teddy. Um, But we definitely always had cats growing up. Always, always. And so how did you get started working? I know before you were at Harford County, you had worked at the Baltimore Humane Society. How did you get started in the animal sheltering, animal welfare world? Was that something that you sought out? Well, to be honest with you, um, I started out doing administrative work for a temp agency. And then I worked at the Archdiocese of Baltimore for several years. And then at the Baltimore Basilica for 10 years, um, which if you're not familiar with that, it's uh, America's First Cathedral is what it's called in Baltimore. And um, I had been working in nonprofits pretty much all of my adult life. And I knew I wanted to stay in the nonprofit world. And um, I started volunteering at Barks when it first became Barks. Oh, okay. Um, Literally within its first year of becoming Barks. Um, And things were tough then. I mean, they're tough now, but they were tougher then. And it really opened my eyes to the whole world of animal welfare and sheltering. And that's when I decided that's what I wanted to do with my career. And the only issue was that I had sort of become accustomed to a certain lifestyle. You know, I had a mortgage and a car and all this kind of thing. And I couldn't make it go on doing, you know, like a kennel worker salary. Right. 
Um, so I was keeping my eyes peeled for like more of a management role, something in marketing or fundraising, um, volunteer management, things I had been doing at the Basilica. Right. And a marketing position was posted on Craigslist at the Baltimore Humane Society. And I went out to interview for that position. And at the interview, I was told that actually that position had been filled. And so I said, okay, well, then why am I here? Um, and they said, well, uh, we saw you had fundraising experience on your resume, and we are considering hiring a development director. And so the interview sort of segued into a development director position. And several months later, um, I ended up starting there as a development director. Three months after that, uh, they told me that they wanted me to be the executive director. Oh, wow. So it was a little trial by fire. Yeah. <laughs> I had to learn really everything about animal sheltering because as a volunteer at Barks, I mean, I really wasn't doing any of the front office stuff, right? right? So, so I had to learn everything about the industry, locally, nationally, um, you know, what was my philosophy going to be? Uh, what type of shelter did I want to run? What programs did I find were most valuable? How did I want my staff to be treated? I had never managed a single person and I had 40 people all of a sudden wow. to manage and, and essentially three businesses. There was a, a pet cemetery on the property. Right. There is a, a low cost spay neuter clinic on the property. And then of course the animal shelter. Right. Um, and so um, it was a lot really fast. Right. And that's how I learned best, though. So it turned out well. And I was there for about five years mm -hmm. before I came here to the Humane Society of Hartford County. Okay. And I, I remember, I think I had met you during the time um, that you were at Baltimore Humane Society. Uh, a lot of it was through the Pitbull Law mm -hmm. stuff in 2012. Sure. I think you had been very involved in, in that. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. I love doing legislative work as much as I am able to do. Um, I do think that humane legislation is an area where people that are interested in animal welfare would be well served to learn more about and become more involved in getting to know their legislators, getting to know them on a personal level so that they can approach them. Relationship building is so important in our industry for every single little bit, every single thing, um, for making good laws, for raising money, for raising awareness, for bringing in volunteers and fosters and rescue partnerships, all of that. It's all about relationship building. And that definitely humane legislation is an area that I, I would hope that more people would become involved with. I had been involved in that also, and um, and I guess I'm I'm sort of disappointed in myself now thinking about it because kind of after that happened, I haven't really kept up with it. But it, at the same time, it was a really good um, experience for me because it was the first time that I ever really had ever been involved in meeting my legislators and going to Annapolis and and understanding how any of of that worked. So. They actually have an annual Humane Lobby Day right. every year in Annapolis, which is coming up on February 26th. And I would encourage everybody listening, if you're a Maryland resident, to sign up for that and go and attend that. It really does sort of help you get your foot in the door with your local legislators. They will set, they will schedule your appointments for you. They will give you some primers and some talking points on some specific legislation that we're focusing on this year. And you'll learn a lot. And you'll get to meet a lot of other really fun and exciting people that are doing the same things that we're doing. Right. And uh, it, it's just, it's a great time. It's a good time. And, um, and you get a free lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do remember um, taking part in that a few years ago. I know now that you have uh, some special needs animals in your life. Yeah, so it just kind of happened, to be honest. Um, you know, it, it just kind of is that way. Um, I've been with my boyfriend for um, almost 18 years now, and he came with a dog. And she was fine, 
until she wasn't, and she ended up having cancer. And it was very quick decline for her. Um, and so that was sort of the first time that I had ever dealt with um, an animal that needed significant medical treatment or care. After she passed away, of course, we did what a lot of people do. We said, we're never getting another animal because it was so painful. Right. Um, and then this little dog sort of fell into my lap. Um, it was a dog that had been left at a boarding facility, like abandoned there. And I ended up with her and she ended up having some significant medical issues. Then we adopted another dog that we came, we got from Petfinder from a rescue in Delaware. And she uh, was deaf, epileptic, had a cleft palate. Oh, wow. While I had her, she also had two mast cell tumor surgeries, a hernia surgery. She ended up, she was uh, just a couple weeks ago, I, in, I had to put her down. And um, she was blind and had significant other medical issues that had kind of come to light over the years. Um, and so, um, yeah. And then I've had a couple other dogs too in the meantime, um, that have come and gone, um, that also had you know, their own little issues. It just sort of seems that they, that's who I end up with. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's so wonderful. We don't always know what we're getting. And then suddenly we become like these experts in some like bizarre, you know, dog illness or, that's or right. something. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so one of the things I had wanted to ask you about, um, and I, I remember, um, I think one of the very first times I met you actually was at the No Kill uh, Sheltering Conference, which um, the one that I went to was several years ago now. I think it was like 2012. I was trying to look it up. But uh, so, yeah, there's a, a movement in the sheltering world called No Kill. And I I love the name and I hate the name because I feel like it's it, it's so kind of in your face. But what, you know, but it, what it's really about is implementing different life-saving programs um, to keep more dogs alive and, and sort of transitioning from, like, an old-school animal control mentality maybe to, like, the animal shelter, you know, let's get animals adopted. I know that, you know, you, you've done a lot of work around around that and around implementing different programs, and so I, I wanted to get your thoughts. Sure. So the Baltimore Humane Society, the shelter that I was at before I was here, was very proudly a no-kill shelter. Um, the shelter where I am now, we have over a 90% live release rate. Which is amazing. Yeah, since 2016, um, we've had that. But, you know, when people ask me about, you know, are you a no-kill shelter, right? People ask me that all the time. And I actually like to put it back on them and say, well, what's your definition of no-kill? Right. Okay, because everyone's got a different definition. And therein lies the problem. Um, not everybody understands no-kill the same way. Um, I think we as humans like to put labels on things, and it's easy if we can sort of put it into this kill or no-kill box. Right. And, you know, when I got started in this industry, I loved the term. And I was one of those people that said, I'll only work at a no-kill shelter, and I'll only support no-kill shelters. And as I sort of um, learn more about the industry, I sort of saw the damage that the term had brought upon really well-meaning people. And so for me, when someone asks if we're a no-kill shelter, I ask them what their definition is. And then I kind of go from there. So you'll hear you know, people who will say, well, it's if you have over 90%. And that's kind of like an industry-wide known benchmark, if you will. Mm -hmm. But that's really for insiders. Most of the general public will say they think it means you never, ever euthanize anything. Or they'll say um, that they think, you know, you don't put a time limit on the animals. Or you never euthanize anything that's healthy or adoptable. That's kind of more insider baseball, too, to say that. There's a million different definitions people will give you. 
we have had over a 90% live release rate since 2016, as I mentioned, but we don't refer to ourselves as a no-kill shelter. And there's a few different reasons. One is that 90% is subjective. I mean, it's right now, but that could change at any given moment. We are an open admission shelter. I was going to ask you if you could explain the difference between closed admission and open admission. Yeah. So open admission. So we're a nonprofit organization, not affiliated with HSUS. Like we don't get funding from them, operational funding, but we do contract with the Hartford County government to provide sheltering services, right? The Hartford County government does not operate its own shelter. We are it. And so we receive a portion of our annual operating budget from the county government for providing that service. So that would mean like Harford County government runs animal control, right? Like if there's no. a dog or no, it's all run the sheriff. No, the sheriff's office. Oh, actually. Okay. And the sheriff's office is not part of the Harford County government either. Oh, okay. So what's really interesting is so there's a million different business models, if you will, for each, like, animal county. sheltering and right for animal sheltering and animal control. So we're what's called a public private partnership. We are a nonprofit that contracts with the county government to provide the service for sheltering. And so the part of the requirement of our contract is that we accept any animal that comes to our door in need, regardless of its medical or behavior status, as long as it's a stray pet found within Harford County it is an owner surrender being surrendered by a resident of Harford County, or if it comes in through any of the police departments or animal control. And that could be, you know, particularly with animal control, that's typically, um, that can be owner surrenders and strays, but also hoarding cases, dog fighting, abuse, neglect, etc. right? And so because of that, you know, it's, it's sort of a numbers game for us here, right? We always have to sort of maintain what's considered a humane capacity for care. Just because you have X number of cages doesn't mean you have the staff and volunteers to support and provide a humane level of care for the animals in all of those cages. So we have to be mindful of that. You know, our role here is not to warehouse animals. That's not how we're going to do things here. Uh, we're going to make sure that we're providing the best level of care that we possibly can and maintain a a humane level of care for the resources that we have available to us. So because of that, that 90% could drop. You know, we get in a dog fighting case and it's it's, it's a large number of seriously aggressive animals that is not, we can't put out into the community. It's not safe. Um, We could get a hoarding case with, you know, hundreds of cats and they all have some sort of deadly illness. You know, there's any of these kind of scenarios that could happen, right? So that 90% statistic looks great on paper, but there's a lot that goes behind that. So that's one reason. Another reason is that it really disparages the work of really excellent organizations that haven't reached 90% yet, okay? So like, I always go back to Barks, talking about Barks. Um, They have done an amazing, amazing job over there at that shelter. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, they're right on the precipice of 90% or, or just have hit it or, you know, somewhere around there. But all these years leading up to it, they were still doing amazing work and they had the right philosophies and the right, you know, uh, the right people. And it was all good. They just hadn't reached that number yet. So does that mean that they're not deserving of people's support? Absolutely not. They're the ones who need it the most. Right. Right. You know, so, um, so I think that you have to take that into consideration. And then the third reason is just because you're 90% or more, doesn't mean you're doing it the right way, okay? So you can be one of those organizations that's warehousing animals or animals are suffering and you're not providing a a good level of care for those animals. And you can have over 90%, but how are you getting there? 
So what I always tell people is to really just get to know the organization before they support it. Just get to know it. Go in there. You know, organizations like ours should be transparent. They should be forthcoming with statistics and information. They should have thriving volunteer programs. And if they don't, why? You know, ask why. You know, in our business, people ask a lot of questions, and it's okay. I'm used to those questions. I'm used to those tough questions like, are you a no-kill shelter? Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and technically, are we? I don't know. We have over 90%. We don't put a time limit on the animals. At the end of the stray hold, they stay here. You know, people say, what, what happens to the animals if they don't get adopted? Well, they stay here until they do, or they go to one of our amazing rescue partners. We have a thriving volunteer and foster program, uh, which have really helped with increasing our live release rate. And... Some of our other programming, shelter intervention, has helped reduce the number of animals coming into the shelter, things like that. All of that factors into um, the no-kill equation, as it's called, but we don't use that terminology here. And then there are also closed admission shelters, right, where, like, they don't have to take any and every animal. They kind of can come to somebody like you and say, hey, we have three spots open up, can we, and they can kind of pick or choose like which dogs they want to take or which animals they want to take. Right. And so they can have an easier time promoting themselves as they know kill shelter, but that they also get to um, be a little more choosy about what's coming in the door. And and I don't want to um, sound like that's a bad thing because we need everybody. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's something, right, that also I think can affect the terminology and the, the, the statistics. That right. Yeah. And, and I prefer to use the term limited admission rather than closed admission, just because the term closed just has sort of a negative right. connotation. And they're not closed. They're just limited. So, um, you know, there are other shelters out there. Typically, they are not the ones who have the contract with the county or are the county shelter. And they are privately funded. So that means that they um, they fund their budget through donations only, not through government contracts or taxpayer dollars or things like that. It's all through donations. And, um, yeah, they may have limitations. They may say, you know, we're not going to take animals over a certain age or we're not going to take animals with a bite history or, you know, certain medical conditions or just mindfully taking in those animals. Okay, we can accommodate this. You know, we want to we have room in our ringworm trailer for, you know, a litter of kittens with ringworm right now, you know, things like that. So they just have to be more mindful as, as far as their intake is concerned with those kind of things to make sure that they can provide again, the humane level of care for those animals. So there's places for everybody because, you know, open admission shelters like mine and others, um, we are not always able to care for those types of animals, but those shelters are. And they can provide that level of care that we may not be able to because they don't have, you know, the influx 24-7, 365 of animals coming in. Um, So there's room at the table for everybody. So you had just mentioned um, shelter intervention programs. So is that something uh, new that uh, has started in the time that you've been here? So um, no. So shelter intervention um, has been sort of the way of the sheltering world now for for several years. Um, and definitely when I was at Baltimore Humane, it was something that we were talking about and implementing there as well. Um, but shelter intervention is essentially... Um, you know, shelters have gotten really good at figuring out how to get animals adopted. So now we're talking about why are they coming in and how can we prevent that? Because if it's a good home with a loving owner who is capable of caring for that animal um, or would be capable of caring for that animal with some help, that's where that animal belongs, not in a shelter, no matter how nice the shelter is. 
So oftentimes we have people that call us up that want to surrender their pet for something that um, is either something that we can help them with or we can connect them up with resources that they may not be aware are available to them or they might not have thought of. Um, sometimes it's as simple as loaning someone or giving someone a crate. Um, sometimes it is connecting them up with a health or human service agency in the county that they're not aware of has resources for them. So there's a lot of different things that we can do and a lot of friends in the community that are willing to help people. Um, so oftentimes when animals are being surrendered, it's not because of anything the animal's done. It's because of something going on in the person's life. Right. Right. So shelters are now kind of moving away. Uh, progressive shelters are moving away from being um, more adoption centers and being more resource centers. Um, and so providing that to try and stop the influx of animals coming in in the first place. And of course, microchipping and um, spay and neuter is super important too. I love hearing uh, about that because I really do think that that's sort of the future, you know, and where where things are going to more evolve to. And um, in the work that I've done, you know, with Be More Dog and in the yeah. you know communities where we're going into the communities, like those are the, the kind of stories that we you hear. You know, sometimes it's as simple as, you know, if we can just get somebody a bag of food a month. It'll, you know, help their life immensely and help them be able to keep their dog, you know, that they love. Or sometimes it's, um, you know, they, they need help fixing a fence, you know, say, so that their dog will stop getting out, you know. Right. And it's an older person who's not able to, you know, get out there and do that themselves. And, um, and it'll prevent them from getting picked up by animal control or having to pay a fine or right. you know, something. And, and I, I had gone to a conference back in like 2009, I want to say, and I saw Lori Weiss of Downtown Dog Rescue in Los Angeles. And like the big takeaway that I had gotten, you know, from, from that, from her at that time is that it's about that if you want to help animals, you really have to help people. That's right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, that was really a big shift, um, in my mindset and to, um, look at sort of being proactive, you know, as, and obviously it's like, a dog coming in you're already reactive but I, I love sort of this um progression to also being proactive with helping you know keep pets in homes and, and prevent them from coming here in the first place so so for instance I didn't know that that was something that you guys did here so I'm, I'm and I live in this county yeah 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 we have a pet food pantry um, and so we have that for residents oh, okay. of Harford County. Uh, we do low-cost um, puppy obedience courses and adult dog obedience courses um, using Mutt Magic mm -hmm. Training Company. Um, they actually use our space here, and it's an eight, they're each eight-week courses. But we also do free behavior consultations, um, and so we have a trainer on our staff and a trainer on our board, and they sort of they do those behavior consultations, and that's again to help prevent, um, in some cases, some surrenders for people that have just some behavior issues that could be worked out in the home. And sometimes, you know, we find right. out really maybe surrender is the best option for that animal. You know what I mean? And so, because truly, sometimes it is. And um, so we have that. Um, and then we have partnerships with dog walkers and uh, boarding facilities and groomers and all kinds of other agencies that are out there that are specific to animals that may be able to offer some services as well, um, either low cost, in some cases free, depending on the circumstance. We have our adoption counselors are also our intake counselors, and they are providing those services and resources along with a whole host of other. They have this huge binder. I can <laughs> up imagine. There. Yeah. They have this huge binder up there, and they can refer them and talk to them through some different things. I mean, there's all types of programs that we do um, that will just 
ultimately result in keeping that animal in that house. And that's the most important thing. When it's the right house, that's where that animal belongs. So when I first adopted from here, the building that the shelter was in <laughs> was like so crazy. It was, I don't know, like a barn almost like had from like the 1940s, you know, and like didn't have air conditioning. And, and you guys have this beautiful new facility now. Um, and I still love anytime I drive by here. It's, it's so exciting to see, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so. I um, do know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you were here with the old building, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what other changes have been taking place here either in, you know, your programs and that have helped contribute to the 90 percent, you know, live release rate? So for us, I think we've really grown our volunteer and foster program significantly. We are allowing our volunteers to do more than they were ever sort of allowed to do before. They can really do pretty much anything that the staff can do for the most part. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that has been uh, hugely helpful because they are kind of our street team, you know, when they're out in the community and they're talking us up and when they're meeting with adopters here in the shelter, um, our fosters are adoption ambassadors for us. When they have their animals, um, they're posting them on social media and talking to their friends and family and getting them adopted so that they can take in another litter of kittens, you know, as quickly as possible. So that's been hugely helpful. Um, Also growing our rescue partner program has been immensely helpful to saving more lives here in Hartford County. You know, when I started here, there was something of a rescue partnership program, but it's grown in leaps and bounds over the past several years. And that is thanks to the hard work of our team here. And uh, particularly our shelter operations director, Kat Kelly, um, she has been really a godsend for this organization. She started, I started in August of 2015, and I I brought her on in October of 2015, the end of October. And she brought with her just such a wealth of knowledge and partnerships and relationships that have helped the organization grow immensely in just in the short time that we've been here. That's wonderful. So in addition to that, though, um, also just providing enrichment for the animals, um, just some basic enrichment. And these, these are all programs that we want to grow more, and we will over time. Um, staffing is always an issue in sheltering. I mean, it just is. Um, it's a high turnover industry. It's um, very, it, it's not for everybody working in shelters. And so, you know, being able to have steady staff, you know, that really will help us grow these programs further. Um, So if I might just give a little plug, we are hiring (laughs) for everything, um, every department, part-time, full-time, even some management positions. So I would encourage everybody to go to our website and take a look at the positions we have open. Um, We really do have a great benefits package. Our uh, pay is competitive with other shelters in the area. And um, it's a cool place to work. You know, we're, we're a fun bunch of people. I can imagine. <laughs> and we have a beautiful new building. Yes. And, and even though, you know, the property around here is just you mm-hmm. know, it's scenic. It is. 26 <laughs> acres. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So one of the other things I'm always interested in finding out about, you know, working in shelters is around the idea of compassion fatigue and burnout and you know, I can imagine that, you know, it is sort of difficult if you're, you know, you're being faced with, you know, people who are surrendering, surrendering animals. And, you know, sometimes there's like a, a people suck, you know, kind of mentality. Um, and I've probably been guilty of that in the past. But, you know, I've really feel so fortunate that I've had so many experiences to help me kind of evolve beyond that, you know. <laughs> um, so is, is that something that, you um, that you think about or that you know that you deal with or build into your work or your self-care? Yeah, so um, conf- compassion fatigue, uh, burnout, 
suicide, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, gambling, all of these types of negative coping mechanisms are very prevalent in our industry, unfortunately. And it is something that I think about a lot. I have to keep an eye on myself, but I have to keep an eye on my team and I have to rely on my team to keep an eye on themselves as well and each other, right? And that goes to volunteers and fosters as well. I mean, really anybody, anybody in our community, because caretaking, you know, compassion fatigue is a term that is used in many industries, not just animal sheltering right. or rescue, right? So like it's any nursing kind of, and any yeah, kind of caregiving. Hospice kind care, of. Um, things like that, pediatric medicine and hospice and things like that. So yeah, it's something that we have to be mindful of all the time. Um, and so we do Throughout the year, we do we touch on it, um, and then once a year, we do a sort of a more formalized compassion fatigue, or um, as what we're focusing on now is compassion resilience training, and we talk about all of it. You know, why? What is it? What does it look like? Um, sometimes one of the hardest things when you're faced with it as a manager or as a supervisor, you see it in your people you don't always see it in yourself and they don't see it in themselves. And so one of the hardest things can be having a conversation with someone who is suffering because they don't see it and they think you're crazy and they think you're, you know, judging them or, um, in some cases they think you're trying to retaliate against them for something and, you know, their, their thinking is not working right. Right. And so, um, you know, it, it can it can go south very easily um, and it can be a really difficult conversation to have. But in the end, you have to have that conversation and you have to keep your eyes peeled for that kind of thing. So we do talk about um, self-care, which is more than just, you know, go have some ice cream, go have right. a cupcake. You know, it's about every single day care, taking care of your overall health and well-being. So your physical health, you take your vitamins, get plenty of sleep, eat well, um, all of that kind of thing. But one of the biggest things is taking a step away from work. It can be so hard. When you get into this line of work, you do it because you're passionate. The problem is, is that it's never ending. And so if you can't step away from it and really turn off, it will absorb you and it will take over your life. And I have dealt with it. Um, it's ongoing. It's like, um, it's like an addiction in this being in this line of work. Right. And so it never goes away. And so you can step away from it, maybe, you know, little periods here and there, but you have to be able to really have a consistent plan of action for yourself to take care of yourself. Because um, unfortunately, I have seen people who have committed suicide in this business because they became overwhelmed. um, And they didn't see any way out. And, you know, when you become absorbed in this world, you let a lot of other things go, you let your friendships go, you let your relationships go, you might let your bills go, um, then you have all kinds of problems because of that. Um, you know, you lose your house, your car, your family, your friends, your health, a lot of things. And that just makes everything worse. Your whole world is just crashing in around you because you want to help animals, right? right? You know, it's so simple, but it's so complex. And um, I, I guess like, I always think like, you know, like your dog would not want you to not take care of yourself. That's right. And that's the thing. So it's just like, so what I, one of the things I talk about when I give this presentation um, about compassion resilience is it's just like when you're in an airplane and they say, when the mask comes down, put it on yourself first and then put it on the child next to you or whoever. It's the same thing. You have to take care of yourself first or you're not going to be able to take care of anybody uh, because you're going to burn out. You're going to commit suicide. You're going to, something bad is going to happen. It's going to prevent you from being able to continue to go. And 
even if you're going, 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 you're not giving everything you could be. So you have to be able to take a step back. You have to be able to um, have a good work-life balance. I mean, everyone talks about that no matter what line of work you're in. Right. But it can be especially difficult when you're in this line of work because it is 24-7 with social media on top of it. Right. Right? You constantly see the pleas and the posts and the graphic images and, you know, that gets stuck in your head. And um, it's hard to walk away from. I have to um, even police that for myself just because, you know, you know, and I don't even work, you know, in the field, but just because, oh, I follow this, you know, rescue and then you want to be like supportive by liking the Facebook or commenting on things. But yeah, like I, I have to um, reevaluate that just for myself sometimes because it's like I, I can't be constantly bombarded by by this, you know, because it, it does start to affect me. And, yeah. and my husband just had to get off like social media completely, basically. <laughs> well, that's what I did. I, um, you know, I stopped. I still follow a lot of the same people and rescues and organizations, but um, I turned them off on my timeline right. because I just can't keep, see- I do it every single day, right. right? I don't need to keep seeing it all the time. And I think that, um, you know, for me, for us as an organization, uh, we've chosen to focus on positive social media stories. Now, every now and then, you know, we do get a case in and we'll post something and we'll say, you know, look, this animal came in, broken leg or, you know, so whatever. But we don't get into a whole lot of the graphic details. You know, sometimes the comments will start, which is not helpful. Um, You know, how could somebody do that? What a, you know, POS and all this kind of thing. And that doesn't help anybody. So we just try to stay focused on the positive. Um, We try to focus on what brings us together and not what sets us apart. And really, you know, try to remember, you know, one of the things that can be so difficult is when we come to work and there's an animal tied up out front or left in a carrier, you know, a cat left in a carrier or in a rubbermaid tub you know or whatever with holes cut in it or something like that and your initial reaction is i can't believe that person dumped that animal here and then you got to take a minute and you have to make yourself do it right you have to rise above it and say well at least they brought it here they could have just let it go they could have killed it they could have done any number of things but they didn't they brought it here they poked holes in that cage or in that rubbermaid tub you know so it could get some air you know what i mean like so, and, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I was talking to somebody about recently is just sort of the idea of shame mm-hmm. and that, you know, uh, what is going on in this person's life, you know, that they can't even imagine the idea of like having to face you and be like, I can't do right. this, you know, and, yeah. and the shame that accompanies that. And so for them, this was the best that they could do. Um, and, and at the same time, I can imagine the horror and the dismay and the disappointment of you know you coming into work in the morning and here's you know a dog tied to your front gate or, or whatever right. so so I, I mean like I totally you know get both sides of it and um I you know I don't I don't know what the balance is but you know I just uh you know it's like that was just the best they could do you know right I mean for for us we know that you know, we have cameras, first of all. <laughs> so, you know, we can at least see how long the animal was out there, right? Um, we have excellent veterinary partners. We have a vet on our staff. We have excellent vet team here. So if the animal comes in in any type of distress, we can provide care for it right away. But if it comes in and it's it's uh, pretty bad, we have cameras. And we can do our best to try and figure out what happened and, and try to f- get to the bottom of it. 
we just have to reframe the way that we think of everything and just try to focus on the positive because for every jerk that comes in and they are there sometimes there's jerks right there are a million other people that are doing the right thing so one person comes in and is nasty and is hateful whatever to the front desk staff or to the adoption or to the animal care staff or whoever but let's look at all the volunteers that came in that day let's look at all the good people who came and dropped off donations let's look at the people that came in to look at an animal to adopt maybe they didn't but they came in right so there's it just far outweighs the negative the positive just does but you have to train your brain to think that way and that is also part of compassion resilience retraining the way that you look at things and it's okay if your brain immediately goes to the bad place, but you got to pull yourself out of it. That's compassion resilience. That sounds like a cognitive behavioral therapy. It is. Yeah. It is. So <laughs> it's funny because, um, you know, so much of dog training is training people. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> it's it's kind of like that. It's like you're retraining your brain how to think, right? So you're giving yourself different cues, you're giving yourself different rewards. Um, You know, so it's dog training is people training, people training is, you know, how you kind of get through this job and this business. Yeah. I've gone to so much therapy over the years. I recognize this (laughs) technique right off the bat. That's right. (laughs) One other thing I had wanted to ask you about, I know, you know, there's various uh, like conferences um, around the country that bring together people in the animal welfare world. And um, and I was talking to somebody who was a dog trainer about this and just, uh, you know, hearing about like what, what other people are doing around the country. And like, is that something that you find beneficial? Is that something you enjoy doing? It is. It is really a great uh, battery recharger. Um, And as a matter of fact, um, so the Professional Animal Workers of Maryland, if you're not familiar with that, um, that is a fraternal organization for all of the shelters and animal control agencies in the state of Maryland. Um, It's been around since the 70s, um, and it's a way for us to keep in touch with each other, kind of um, help each other out, answer questions, help each other be better. And be a sounding board for each other sometimes just so we can vent <laughs> with someone who actually understands and uh, we meet quarterly but we have you know a little facebook group and all that kind of thing so um, it's a great resource for anybody who works in sheltering or animal control but we partnered with humane rescue alliance and saint hubert's and we are putting on the very first mid-atlantic animal field services animal care and field services conference which is taking place april 8th through 10th in ocean city maryland oh wow and that actually is uh, you can register now online you can see the courses that are going to be offered Um, there are ce credits available for some of them as well through uh, both naca and uh, the association for animal welfare administrators So I would encourage anybody who's interested in um, conferences to take a look at that. But there are several conferences um, and all of the conferences are kind of geared towards different people in different areas of our business. So there's conferences that are great for rescuers. There's conferences that are great for volunteers. There's conferences for those of us who are in management um, and animal control. I, I think they're great. And I'll tell you, when I first started at Baltimore Humane and didn't know anything, um, I went to the New England Federation Animal Welfare Conference. And that is really what set me on the path. 
and of course all of the ASPCA Pro webinars um, and the Humane Society um, animal sheltering website webinars, um, all of those free resources are out there. Maddie's Fund has a ton of them. I mean, there's there's really a ton of resources out there that are free um, and or low cost. And the conferences are also a great way. I like to provide that as community. Um, continuing education and professional development for my team, but also for myself. And I know just, um, I've gone to a couple of them over the years and I like, I always just feel so like motivated, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, oh, I'm gonna get back, I'm gonna do all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be overwhelming because you do get so much information and you have to digest it and then you have to prioritize it and then you bring it back to your team and you figure out who's gonna do what. And um, But it is nice if you can send um, staff to things like that because they can come back and then train the rest of your staff. So like we have monthly all staff meetings. And so, um, you know, if we send somebody to something or like just recently, we, along with Baltimore County Animal Services and the Maryland SPCA, won a grant from HeartSpeak, which is a national network of pet photographers that loan their services to shelters to teach them how to take better photos of their animals and market their animals better through photography. Yeah. And so we won a grant along with those other two shelters and they came out and did a two day intensive training course for uh, staff of our shelters. And then it was also opened up to others as well. And all of our shelters won some beautiful lighting and backdrop equipment and oh, wow. a DSLR camera. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was great. And so, um, so we've been doing a lot of that, but not all of our staff could attend those two days of training but our marketing coordinator put together a whole presentation, which basically gave the training to our entire staff um, at, at one of our all staff meetings. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so that's what's great about those conferences. You can send a couple people from different departments maybe, but then they can come back, bring that knowledge back and then present it to your staff. So it's like you get Everybody. the best bang for your buck. Right, you know? right, yeah. that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. I, and that is, you know, so important, um, you know, with photographing animals, because our dog Nino, like my husband, saw his photo on Facebook, you know, he was being shared from the Barks shelter. And, you know, he just had like this big old, you know, bully grin with the tongue hanging out. And my husband's like, that's our next dog, you know, and that's it's, how we got it. It's really true. Pictures can really win people over. You know, there's a the flip side to that is people fall in love with the picture and then they meet the animal and they're like, oh, yeah, this is the animal for me. But maybe it's not actually oh, the right, animal right, for right, them. Yeah. So that's where the marketing piece is super important because how you word your description um, you know, your profile of the animal. Maybe sometimes a picture isn't what wins them over, but the profile does. So they go hand in hand. And that, so the training was super important for our teams to, um, you know, what are the words that have a, a more positive connotation um, versus, you know, it conveys the same message, but in a more positive way. Um, so some of that was just so important for us um, and for our team. And we've already seen a benefit of that. Oh, that's for wonderful. Sure. Yeah. So saying something like, you know, like if a, if a dog is more like skittish or something, you know, like, mm -hmm. but like communicating that they're shy, right. you know, rather than like fearful or, right, exactly. um, or, um, but you, cause you also don't want, if somebody wants like an outgoing dog, you want to like mm -hmm. communicate that, you know, one of the things I was talking with uh, a dog trainer recently about is like the idea of like choosing the right animal for your lifestyle, oh, yes. you yes. know? And so, um, I do think that that's something that I think shelters are, are doing a better job of like with, you know, like the wording and the marketing and trying to say like, you know, like this is a shy dog. This is a really energetic dog, right. or, you know, yeah. because I think that um, 
that's a really important piece to like making sure the right animal gets in the right home. Mm -hmm. And that's shelter intervention because that's preventing returns. Returns are not the a dirty word, you know, um, because at least that animal then we it comes back with more information than we had before. Um, it got some time out of the shelter. We don't want a return right. per se, right? But if it's not the right fit, it's not the right fit. But uh, you know, we. Um, we really do think that, you know, some of the best shelter intervention is making a good match in the first place. Right. right? So. Yeah. And I love, um, I think you, you'd said like the adoption counselors and it's almost like a matchmaking, right? Cause mm -hmm. they're, they're trying to, um, get enough information out of these people to like, make sure that they're putting them with the right kind of animal. Yeah. Like that's a really, um, like they do a really important job. You it know? is, it is. And it, it can be tough. And, you know, sometimes again you know some things are kind of subjective so like one person's you know um lazy lifestyle is some other person's active lifestyle right. you know what right. i mean so when you say well what's your household like or you know do you have an active household well what does that mean right. you know that could mean so that's why sitting down and really having a conversation and not just going off a piece of paper um you know that's called conversational adoption counseling Obviously, there's some critical information you need on paper, but then you use that as cues to have that conversation and kind of delve into things a little bit more deeply and really get to, again, relationship building, getting to know that person and what their lifestyle is like so that you can make the best match for them based on what we know about the animal while it's been here. Right. You know. Yeah, that's, that's an important job. Mm-hmm. For sure. What, what is like your biggest accomplishment or like your, do you have like a proudest accomplishment moment? Oh my gosh. Um, you know, when I started here, I had given myself sort of a five-year transition plan. And one of the things that I thought would be one of the easiest things has turned out to be the hardest thing, which is finding and hiring a vet and having spay and neuter done on site. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, it seems like every other shelter does this and is able to do this. And for us, it's been an extreme challenge that I can't really even put into words. If anything has kept me awake at night, it's been this, right. not being able to find a, a you know a vet and um, having them get our spay-neuter center up and running for our shelter animals. Um, but we're there now, which is super exciting. Um, and so we're in that process now where we are actually spaying and neutering animals before they go out for adoption for the first time ever. Oh, wonderful. Um, we're doing that here in the shelter. So that's been, that's been huge, I will say. And the only other thing that was on that list that has not been accomplished yet was uh, starting a strategic plan because the organization's never had one. And we've just embarked on that as well. And I'm at four and a half years. <laughs> so we will have that done by the time I've hit my five-year anniversary. Well, that's very exciting. And that strategic plan is going to tell me what we're going to do for that. Well, I have some ideas. Um, but that strategic plan is going to help us get to where I see us in the next three to five years after that. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Is there anything that um, that you wish people knew about working in an animal shelter? Oh, um, it's not just playing with puppies and kitties all day, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> That's really, I think, you know, um, that's one of the hardest things about recruiting and retaining staff um, is that they think they're going to come here and they're going to play with puppies and kitties. And that's just not what it is. And so we try to be upfront with people about that early on in the process. But it's until you come in here and actually do the work, you just can't, you just don't get it. Right. And I'm sure that can be said of other industries as well. 
but I'm not in those. I'm in this right. one. <laughs> so for me, um, you know, that's that's one of the things that I think people just don't realize some of the stuff that we deal with. Um, it's an emotionally charged environment. And sometimes we tell people things they don't want to hear. And they think we're making a judgment call on them as a human being or as a person. And it's simply, you know, we don't think this, that this is the right animal for you. Right. And then to get attacked on social media. You know, sometimes we do have to euthanize animals. We just do. And people don't always agree with it because usually they don't have all the information. Right. And we can't always disclose all of that information, particularly if it's a court case or something. And social media really has emboldened people to say things to us that they wouldn't say to our face. And it's extremely hurtful. And that definitely contributes to that whole compassion fatigue and burnout thing to be called a murderer or a killer or. Um, you know, to have people say, well, you obviously don't care about the animals to your face when, um, which does happen occasionally, well, they'll, where they'll actually say it to your face, but, you know, on, online or whatever, because you have said, I'm sorry, I just don't think this is the right household for this particular animal. Our priority is the animal. Right. It's not you. Right. You know, I'm sorry. And so we have to go on the knowledge and the expertise that we have. And I'm, you know, they may be, a, it, it might have been a wonderful home. But we have to err on the side of caution and err on the side of what we think is best. And um, sometimes people don't want to hear that and they can be pretty nasty about it. Right. And that's that's one of the that's the number one contributing factor to the turnover rate in shelters is people that just cannot deal with it. And I don't I don't blame them sometimes. Right. You know, it's not something I don't have to work on those front lines. OK, so I don't have to deal with that the way that some of my staff do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I could. You know, they have to really, um, they have to put up with a lot. And I'm in a position where I can just make a decision and say, well, sorry, that's it, and hang up the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't do that. But, you know, they um, they have to sit there and kind of take it a little bit. And um, it's, I can't imagine what that would be like day in and day out. So people who work in shelters, who work on the front lines in shelters, really deserve a round of applause <laughs> because <laughs> they really put up with a lot, a lot. We're mindful of the fact that when we do tell people things they don't want to hear, yeah, they could go out and they could bash us and we don't necessarily have the ability to quote unquote defend ourselves on social media. It's like arguing with a drunk person, right? right? You're never going to win. So just don't even bother. But um, in addition to that, you know, you are potentially driving them to go to a breeder or a pet store or you know wherever to get an animal instead of getting it from us or adopting. So, you know, so that's always sort of in the back of your mind too. But at the end of the day, it's the animal that we're here for. It's not that person. You know, um, and so, you take that responsibility very seriously, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and I, it's like that's what we need you to do, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just uh I'm just imagining just all the different difficult circumstances, you know, that, that you must run into. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's there's stories, you know, we could tell um, and we tell amongst ourselves <laughs> um, and nothing is surprising or shocking. If something can go wrong, it will. You know, it's, it's that kind of Murphy's Law kind of stuff. It's just when you think you've heard the craziest thing ever, some, you know, something else comes along and it's even crazier. Right. And it just, you know, you just have to yeah, just have to smile and keep going, right. keep going, you know. And, you know, and the greater good and it's for the Right, all, and, of that, yeah. all that stuff. <laughs> all right, well, thank you so much. Thank you, Erin. 
I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Jen. Some of my biggest takeaways from the interview was that helping animals is all about relationship building with people. And I think it's funny. I think that that topic and idea has come up in a couple different episodes, and it's definitely been a big lesson that I've had to learn, that we can't feel negative and say, oh, screw people, I only like animals, because in order for us to help animals, we have to build relationships with people. I think another big takeaway from me was the idea that Jen talked about, about getting involved in your local shelter before you're passing judgment. And that it's okay to ask questions, or at least it should be. If you're interested in the idea of Humane Lobby Day, I'm going to post a link in the show notes to the Humane Lobby Day for Maryland, which is actually coming up very, very soon on February 26th. I was looking for one comprehensive link that would have information for other states, but I couldn't find anything. So I'm just going to put a note that if you're not in Maryland, to just Google Humane Lobby Day and then your state. I think pretty much every state has an event like this. I'm also going to put a link in the show notes to the Mid-Atlantic Animal Care and Field Services Conference that Jen mentioned. And I'm also going to put some links that talk about compassion fatigue, compassion resilience, and the importance of self-care, because that's just another huge takeaway, is the importance of self-care in the animal sheltering world, and not just for workers, but also even for the volunteers. I once again just want to thank Jen for her time and for sharing so much about her work at the Humane Society of Harford County. I'll also put some links in the show notes so that you can show the shelter some love on social media. So that'll about wrap it up for today. The next episode is going to be something a little different than I've done before, so I'll be excited to share that with you and get your feedback. You can always send me an email. My new email is erin at believeindogpodcast.com. You can find me on Facebook at Believe in Dog Podcast and on Instagram at believe underscore in underscore dog underscore podcast. So for today, this is Erin Scott sending hugs and belly rubs. 